don't you just hate to lose stuff? My wife, Norma, spends lots of time looking for things that I have misplaced. Early on, when we had just fallen in love and getting to know each other, early on in our relationship, after she spent a few months helping me retrieve important things that I had lost, Norma asked, John, what did you do before I came along? And in her telling of the story, my answer was, well, I just went from place to place losing things. The most frequently spoken words at our house are these. Honey, have you seen my keys? Sweetheart, I can't seem to find my wallet. Or, darling, I'm trying to find my cell phone. Have you seen it? My dear wife says that I call her honey and sweetheart and darling because I can't remember that her name is Norma. <laughs> Have you ever lost anything important? Have you ever been lost? It hurts, doesn't it? And what happens when you lose something infinitely more important than a set of keys or a wallet or a cell phone. What if you lose your job? What if you lose your home? What if you lose your spouse? What if you lose your best friend? What if you lose your child? What if you lose the things that make you glad to be alive? What if you lose yourself? The words of our Lord in Luke 15 make it clear that alienation and estrangement break not just our hearts, but God's heart as well. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd has a hundred sheep. One of them wanders away and gets lost. Well, that's a mere 1% of the flock. But the shepherd isn't okay with it. It's just one sheep out of a hundred, but the shepherd is not willing to write it off. He goes looking for his lost sheep and finds it and comes home rejoicing. Then Jesus tells about a, a woman who has 10 coins which constitute her dowry, crucial to a woman's prospects for getting married, having a family, that her society viewed as her one opportunity for, for a full, successful life. She loses one coin, 10% of her dowry. But she will not just write it off to bad luck. She goes to work, does what has to be done, to find that lost coin and make her dowry whole again. And when she finds it, she calls in her neighbors and says, let's celebrate. Then Jesus tells that familiar story about a father who had two sons. Two sons who lost themselves. It's a story about the refusal of the father 
to accept loss and alienation and estrangement as the final word in the life of his family. Those three stories, I believe, provide our basic clue to who God is and what God is doing in the lives of his children who've lost their way. Listen carefully. Luke 15, beginning with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered why this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven of a one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous person who do, persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose that a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I'll tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his sons, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, servants Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitute, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Draw near, Holy Spirit. Prepare our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand. Give us a will to obey what Jesus is saying to us now. In his name we pray. Amen. The climax of Luke 15 is the story found only in Luke about a father who had two sons and lost them both. We know the story as the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really strange that we should call it that. Prodigal is an old word that originally meant lavish, luxurious. Then as the years went by, it began to take on a note of moral judgment or disapproval. It came to mean something like too lavish, extravagant, wasteful. Soon it became another word for irresponsible or negligent. And it's in that sense that we use the word when we speak of the parable of the prodigal son. But you might be surprised to notice that the word prodigal does not occur in the story at all, as Jesus tells it. Perhaps our way of using the word reflects an overreaction to one of the three characters in the story, namely the younger son. I call it an overreaction because Jesus clearly does not single out the younger son for the kind of uh, exclusive attention we often give the younger son when we hear the story. Jesus is every bit as much interested in the older son as in the younger, and perhaps more so. Remember, he is telling the story not to thieves and tax collectors and cheats and 
He's not, he's not telling the story to the moral dregs of society. He's telling the story to the religious establishment. And it's in the elder brother that he paints their picture. Jesus is at least as much interested in the older brother as in the younger. And the central figure in the story is neither of them. The story is not about the younger brother or his older brother. It's about the father who loved them both, but who first lost them both. One who wandered away and ended up in a pig pen far from home, and another who lost himself behind a tightly defensed barricade of legalism and self-righteousness and judgmental arrogance. The story is really about the father who had two sons and lost them both, but went right on being their father anyway. Who went right on loving them both just the same. And I know this will sound uh, odd, but consider again the original meaning of the word prodigal, extravagant, lavish, abundant. In that sense, the original sense of the word, maybe we ought to call it the parable of the prodigal father. The prodigal father who gave his love lavishly, extravagantly, generously, you might even say wastefully, for he lavished his love on his two wayward sons, when most people would surely have concluded that neither of them deserved anything but his wrath, his anger. Maybe the fact that we call this the parable of the prodigal son points to some obstacles that will have to be cleared up before we can grasp what Jesus is trying to say to us in the story. For one thing, we usually ignore the older son, which Jesus clearly never meant for us to do. Maybe that's because we sort of identify with the older son. Maybe that's because it's hard to understand why the story ends the way it does, with the young good-for-nothing enjoying a party that he surely doesn't deserve, while his hard-working, obedient, upper-middle-class brother stands alone on the outside, angry, hurt, sulking. Instinctively, we may feel that the older brother has got a raw deal, <laughs> that an injustice has been done to him. But look a little more closely at this older brother, this respectable, responsible, hardworking son of the prodigal father. His first reaction when he hears the sounds of music and dancing is not to run up and join in the rhythm, the gladness, but rather to ask, what's this all about? Apparently, uh, Joy isn't something that comes naturally to him. It's something that calls for an explanation. When he hears that they're celebrating the homecoming of his younger brother, his response is not joy, but resentment and anger. When his father urges him to come on in and join the party, 
He responds with a a complaint that reveals the fundamental self-centeredness in which his life is trapped. In a single sentence, he uses the words I, me, my, five separate times. His reaction is entirely about himself, about his feelings of self-pity, about the injustice that he thinks has been done to him. In a fit of blind rage, he disowns any connection with his brother. Speaking to the father, the older son refers to the younger not as my brother, but as this son of yours. Who's wasted your wealth on prostitutes. Notice, by the way, how quick he is to draw the worst possible conclusion. How eager he is to believe the worst. How quick he is to jump to his conclusions without waiting to see any hard evidence. How does he know that his brother has been spending his money on prostitutes? Nowhere in the story does Jesus say that. My hunch is that the older son is judging the younger in terms of what he himself would have done had he ever found himself far away from the watchful eyes of his father. Jesus seems to be suggesting that in spite of all his respectability, this older brother is really quite an unlovely person, totally wrapped up in thoughts about himself, about what he deserves, about how superior he is to his brother. Not a very pretty picture. Not a very uh, pleasant person to live with. Could it be that the reason the younger son packed up and went off to the distant country is that he just couldn't bear to live any longer with such a harsh, joyless, self-righteous person as his older brother? But now notice what Jesus does with all this. And again, remember that he's telling the story to the leadership of the religious establishment those fine, upstanding, church-going, middle-class people who feel sure that they deserve God's favor, who have criticized Jesus for inviting the worthless, the undeserving, to sit down at a table and share a meal with him. In the older brother, Jesus has painted their picture with painful accuracy in their smug self-righteousness the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have taken on all the most unattractive characteristics of the older brother, becoming harsh, self-centered, judgmental. But notice that Jesus doesn't simply condemn them. In that scene where the father goes out and pleads with his older son, Jesus is saying to the self-righteous, that God loves them too. In Jesus' day, it would have been scandalous for a father to plead with his son. 
In first century Palestine, a father didn't plead. He commanded, and his word was law. But here's a father who seems to forget about his own dignity, who forgets all about his paternal rights. He comes out and pleads with his other lost son. My son, he says, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. But it was right to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And that's how the story ends. Jesus leaves us dangling, doesn't he? Jesus leaves us not knowing how the story is going to turn out. Not knowing whether the older brother will respond to the father's appeal to come on in and join the celebration. Not knowing if the younger son is going to turn out to be genuine in his alleged repentance. Jesus leaves it for his hearers to write the conclusion for themselves. His immediate hearers, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they too are upset about feasts being spread for sinners. About love being wasted prodigally on the undeserving, on winos and thieves and lepers and prostitutes. But Jesus is appealing to them too. Jesus is assuring them that even the harshest, most mean-spirited, most unforgiving among them is still surrounded by the prodigal love of the Father whose only wish is that they should come on in too and join the party. But what about the younger son? I submit to you that his repentance is not the main point of the story. Indeed, it is not at all clear that his repentance is genuine. But the prodigal father loves him anyway, whether his repentance is genuine or not. Jesus says, when the boy came to himself, which really isn't all that hard to do when you're sitting in a pig pen, hungry and alone, a clarifying moment, so to say. When he came to himself, the younger son began to think about the food and warmth and security of his father's house. That's not repentance. That's not heartfelt regret and sorrow for the pain he's inflicted on his father's heart. Maybe it's just a strategy for doing something about the pain in his own empty stomach. Along the way back home, the boy rehearses a little speech that he hopes will deflect his father's anger and get him readmitted to the family. He'll confess his sin. He'll say he's sorry. He'll ask to be taken back in, not as a son, but as a hired servant. He knows it's a long shot. But it's the best he can do. At just this point, Jesus refocuses our attention on the Father. And suddenly, to our amazement, we realize that the Father's love has never been withdrawn from his rebellious child, not for one moment. Jesus said, while he was still 
at a distance, the father saw him. Do you see what that implies? The father was standing there by the side of the road that day, where he had been standing every day since the boy left. He had never quit watching for his son. He had never quit standing there by the mailbox, day in and day out, inquiring of passers-by if they might have some news about his boy. And on this day, he's still standing there again, peering down the road, hoping against hope that this just might be the day when his son will at last come back home. And sure enough, just when the familiar image of his son rounds the last bend in the road, in what Jesus' hearers would have regarded as a shockingly undignified way for a father to behave, the old man runs up to his son and embraces him and begins to shower him with kisses. The boy begins his carefully rehearsed speech, but he's barely gotten started when his father, who probably wasn't paying all that much attention to the boy's pious words anyway, interrupts. Bring the robe of honor. Bring the ring of sonship. Bring shoes for the feet of him who is not a slave. Kill the fatted calf and cook it. We're going to have a party. It's time to celebrate for this. My son was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. This is not, at least arguably, it is not a parable of repentance. In the first two about the sheep and the coin, clearly repentance is what's on the agenda. Hmm? But in this third story in Luke 15, it's not clear that the boy ever really repented. It's not clear that he was sorry. Maybe he was just hungry. But the father loved him and accepted him and welcomed him back, whether he truly repented or not. The father's love has never been withdrawn for him, not for one moment. The father doesn't love him because he repented. He doesn't withhold his love until the boy repents. I can't help suspecting that if the boy repented, that didn't happen until the moment when he finds himself wrapped in his father's trembling arms and looks up and sees the tears of joy streaming down that weather-beaten old face. And then at last, maybe, it dawns upon him how much and at what a great cost his father loves him and has always loved him. Maybe the old man's hair has turned gray from worry and grief. Maybe the old man has lost weight and is looking especially fragile, too sick at heart to eat, grieving over this lost son of his. And when the boy looks at his father and realizes how much his rebellion, defiance, how much his sin has 
wounded the heart of the one who loves him best of all. Surely his heart of stone just has to melt. Now, that's real repentance. That's the point at which the boy's sorrow for sin because of the mess it had gotten into him, uh, gotten him into, becomes sorrow for sin because of the pain it has brought to the heart of his father. The story really isn't about the boy or his repentance. No, it's about the father who lavished his love wastefully, prodigally, on a son who really didn't deserve it. It's about the father who was filled with compassion. That phrase, filled with compassion, sometimes moved with compassion, is most often used in the New Testament to describe Jesus himself. We're told that Jesus was filled with compassion when he saw the crowds hungry and weary, when he saw a leper near death, when he heard the cries of two blind men stumbling in the darkness, or the weeping of a widow in the funeral procession for her only son. Again and again throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus was filled with compassion, filled with a wasteful, extravagant love that came to this earth and walked the far country in Jesus himself, who told the story and lived among us the Father's prodigal love. And that's all we're left with. We'll never know whether the younger son's repentance turned out to be the real thing or not. We'll never know whether the older brother finally gave up his anger and resentment and came on in to join the party. Jesus ends the story abruptly without letting us know how it all turned out. He knows, after all, that the way the story turns out will depend on those who hear it, as we have heard it today. For the love of the Father still walks the far country. God is the prodigal father who wastes his love on sinners like me, who bestows his love lavishly, wastefully, prodigally on the undeserving, who leans out from the gateway of heaven, peering down every lonely road of this broken world, yearning for the homecoming of his sons and daughters who've turned their backs on his love, longing for the day when at last we will come to our senses, respond to the warmth of his love, and begin living out in our own lives the same kind of prodigal, wasteful, extravagant love so that those who are dead may come to life again, so that those who are lost may be found, so that music and dancing and joy may break out beginning here and now at 2828 Crossover and stretching all the way into the courts of heaven itself. I'll tell you, it can happen. It can happen right here this morning in you and me right here, right now. The God Jesus reveals is not only our creator and judge, 
the God Jesus reveals is the Lord of the dance and the master of the feast. So in the name of God, the prodigal God, the prodigal father, who recklessly lavishes his love on the unworthy, I invite you, I appeal to you, come to the party, come join the dance, and do it now. Amen. When what is lost is found, what you do is you celebrate. The father said, let's, let's have a feast. Celebrate my son who was dead, who was lost, and is now alive and has found his place in the family. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What was true for the father and his two lost sons is true today for God in his relationship to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, it's important to note, I think, that the father does not put either of his sons on probation. He doesn't say, first, I've got to find out if, if you really are worthy of this party. And if you are, I'll let you in. Just like Jesus at the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night before he suffered for us, sat down at the table with Judas Iscariot and Peter and, and, and doubting Thomas and a whole bunch of losers. He welcomed them to his table. He welcomes us to his table now. And you're invited to come. Uh, let me just share with you quickly these brief words from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen.